0: Well, good morning. Happy New Year. What do you think about that? What a joy it is to be back and to worship together today. I'm very, very excited about that. My name is James. I'm the teaching pastor. I think I know all you guys, so we won't have to do the introductions. We're going to dive back into our study in the Gospel of Luke today. When we dive in, we're going to land in a really neat place. We're going to look at Jesus preaching his first sermon in his hometown. So this is that story we like. This is the hometown boy made good, but then really quickly, we're going to see things change. And by the end of the passage, there's this mob mentality. So join me in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 14 to 30 today. And this is a really significant passage in the Gospel of Luke, and he leads with this account as he begins to detail the public ministry of Jesus Christ because he has a super important point to make. And the point is the topic of our outline today. Sometimes we think we know, but it turns out we don't really know. We may think we have something all figured out, but what we may really have is something set up the way we like it, and then if somebody comes and pokes at it a little bit or challenges the things that we understand, then we get really angry, and that's what happens in this account today, because in the beginning of this passage, the folks are loving Jesus. They're like, oh my gosh, he's this amazing teacher, and then they figured out what he was teaching, and they were going to kill him. Now, chronologically, I think Luke might be a little out of order here. I can't prove it, but there's a good chance that this passage actually parallels similar accounts we read about in Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 to 58, and Mark chapter 6 and verses 1 to 6. And so if that's the case, then this is not truly the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He would have been out traveling and preaching and healing for some time before the events that occur here. I think there's a clue to that in verse 16. But I believe that Luke leads with this story because he intentionally wants to point out that a whole lot of people thought they understood what was going to happen when the Messiah would arrive. They fully trusted the Old Testament prophecies. They knew he was coming, but they didn't really understand why he was coming. Selfishly, they'd really gotten off track with what the purpose for God sending his son was. Now, there's a neat illustration to think about with this, and we just all walked through it together. And it's the Christmas season because that can be so exciting and euphoric and hectic. You know it can. And it becomes so much so that even for Christ followers, we can forget what the true meaning of Christmas is. We can misplace that, that God sent his son to be our savior. That's the thing we're supposed to be celebrating. And instead, Christmas becomes this whirlwind of parties and decorations and presents. And we forget what we're celebrating. Now, Christmas, I love the movie, I don't know if you've seen it, of How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the live action one with Jim Carrey, I like that one. Because while it doesn't point directly to the Christmas story, God becoming man in order to reconcile people to himself, the movie of the Grinch just intentionally smacks right in the face what we've made Christmas into. And there's two great scenes in the movie that show this contrast, and the first is where little Cindy Lou Who interrupts the Grinch while he's dressed as Santa Claus and he's Stealing her Christmas tree. And she says, Santa, what is Christmas all about? If you remember that scene, the Grinch barks out, Presents, I suppose. And little Cindy Lou is just crushed. And she says, That's what I was afraid of. And then you take that scene and you just flip it on your ear when they have the big jubilation and there's all this tremendous celebration and there's no presents, there's no decorations, there's not even any food. And they're celebrating. And the Grinch has left a puzzle till his puzzler is sore. What if Christmas perhaps means a little bit more? More than just all the stuff, you know, that we've helped to make it all about. We're going to see that's really similar to what's happened in this account in Luke chapter 4. God's chosen people thought they had the gospel all figured out. They were positive they knew what was going to happen when the Messiah arrived. But they didn't really know. Jesus showing up as God in flesh was about so much more than they'd imagined. And so they're going to learn this hard, hard lesson about who Jesus is and about why he came and about who the gospel can benefit. So let's get started in Luke chapter 4. We'll read verses 14 to 16 together. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding districts. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So the early reports are good. They're liking Jesus. But then he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, that's the clue that he's been doing this, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. So Jesus has launched his public ministry here. And even without the Internet, the news spreads fast. And so he'd go from town to town and he would preach in their synagogue. I mean for us that would be like Jesus going church to church. He's an itinerant preacher. He's just going synagogue to synagogue. Now let's talk about what the synagogue was. It originated during the period when God's people were held captive in Babylon and the temple had been destroyed. So they needed a local place of worship and instruction. That's what the synagogue was. And it continued to serve in that capacity even later, even after the temple was rebuilt because it was so much more convenient for people to worship locally. Now, there's no place in the Bible that tells us what a church service is supposed to look like. I'm pretty sure that's intentional. And so it certainly doesn't tell us what a synagogue service would look like. But we can do some research, and we can see some history, and we, we get a sense of what it looked like. For sure, every synagogue service, they read the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. That's just bedrock for God's people. That's the passage that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So they read that at every meeting. Then there would be some prayers, and they'd have a reading from the law, and a reading from the prophets, and then somebody would teach. Somebody would stand up and expound on the passages they just read. And then there'd be a closing benediction, and that was it. And at the 9 a.m. synagogue, they'd have hymns, and at the 11 a.m., they'd have some contemporary music. Didn't do anything like that. At the meeting, any qualified man could read the Scriptures and then teach. They'd expound on them. So here in Luke 4, that's what Jesus is going to do. And he starts there in verse 17. Let's look at 17 to 22. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing we're going to see from the context Jesus says quite a bit more here because the practice at the synagogue was to stand when the scripture was being read and then to sit and teach and so no doubt that's what he's doing he begins explaining this passage this is a sermon from Jesus and so Luke records in verse 22 all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips and they were saying is this not Joseph's son? this passage is going to turn ugly, but I don't think it has quite yet. I think this is still the good part. I don't think the tide has turned yet. Jesus's audience is still really enjoying the sermon when they ask this question, is this not Joseph's son? They haven't gone negative. At this point, honestly, I just think they're clueless. They're still speaking well of Jesus. They're marveling at his teaching. They're saying things like, oh my gosh, how profound how beautiful. How incredible. Verse 22, they say his words are gracious. He teaches as one who has authority. And we know him, is what they're saying. We know his past. He's Joseph, the carpenter's son. He really shouldn't be able to teach like that, should he? I think they're really caught up in Jesus' style at the onset of the sermon. And the substance of what he's teaching hasn't hit him yet. But there's a huge hinge here that they should have seen it's so important to this account we have to pause and make sure we see it Jesus the carpenter's son sitting in his hometown synagogue has just declared himself to be the Messiah that's what he does in this passage and I think because of how God's people had allowed their story to become about something other than what it was supposed to be about like we can do at Christmas I think they're hearing this sermon from the hometown boy, and they miss it. They miss this incredible truth that Jesus had just presented, and they sort of jump ahead. They skip the claim that Jesus is making about being the Messiah, and they totally focus on the what's in it for us part of the passage. They fly by the anointing part, the preaching of the gospel to the poor section. They miss the heart of the gospel and why it's good news the gospel is good news because we're all poor. We're spiritually poor. We're destitute. The gospel is good news because we're captives. Because unless we profess faith in Jesus, we're enslaved to sin. It's good news because we're all blind. We're spiritually unable to see the light unless God opens our eyes. We're oppressed without Jesus. Some translations say downtrodden. But the Greek literally means broken in pieces. And Jesus is preaching this sermon to people who are in that condition, but they're so prideful they can't see it. Their pride is blocking the message. It's a great picture of this in Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, because they had some serious self-examination issues. And so look at the beginning of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, up here on the screen. God tells the apostle John, hey, I want you to get the church at Laodicea's attention. And so John says, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Now, doesn't that sound like someone who thinks they know who they are? They developed some spiritual blinders, which kept them from seeing their true condition. So God helps them out. He gives them an accurate assessment. God says, you think you know who you are, But the verse continues, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now listen, I know that's not a fun thing to hear. But without Jesus, that's what we are. Wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And we need someone to come along and love us enough to tell us that. Jesus includes this reference from Isaiah 61 in a sermon about the favorable year of the Lord which for sure is a reference to the Jewish year of Jubilee, it occurred every 50 years. And that was the year when debts were forgiven and slaves were set free because Jesus wants this audience in the synagogue to see the spiritual picture of what the gospel truly does. It sets people free. Jesus is sitting in front of these people, preaching as plainly as he can. He's not only proclaiming the good news, he's saying he is the good news. These folks thought they had it all figured out. And so they take the message out of context and they twist it to mean what they wanted it to mean. Because a twisted message of not being physically oppressed anymore would have been really popular with these people because of their past experiences. Let me do a quick rundown on the history of God's people. This is important to our understanding of the passage. This kind of explains why they would turn So quickly and so violently, because they were loving Jesus at the beginning. So here's Israel's history in a nutshell. God comes to Abram, this is Genesis chapter 12, and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. Now that's a neat promise, and the words that God's chosen people really hung on to there were great and blessed, and so that became their takeaway. Hey, when the Messiah comes, we're going to be great and blessed. And because of that, they started to develop this huge sense of pride. And they'd walk around. We're the nation of Israel. We're Jewish. We're God's chosen people. We're going to be great and blessed. And that developed over time. While they were on this journey through a period of slavery in Egypt, and then the journey to the promised land and through being taken captive and uprooted and just continually being overthrown by these surrounding nations that God was using to try and convict them of their pride. He was pronouncing judgment on them. But instead of seeing that, they just became more and more and more prideful. This ethnocentric pride. We are God's chosen people. When the Messiah comes, he's going to make us great and bless us. It's like what we do when we make Christmas all about the presents instead of Jesus. We may not even mean for it to happen, but it happens. It happens because we spend a lot of time getting ready for Christmas and wrapping packages and shopping and decorating and cooking, and we do all those things. And how much time do we spend focusing on Jesus? You see how this could happen to God's people? You see how they could lose focus? And they knew. They knew full well about the prophecies of the Messiah to come. They know this passage that Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61. But they have this long history of hearing they'll be a great and blessed nation. And in their history, they keep getting dominated. First, it's the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then Greece. It happens over and over again. And so sitting here in the synagogue in Nazareth, what they have just heard is Joseph's son saying, he's going to come and set free the oppressed. And they think that's them. (laughs) And so what they're hearing is, okay, now we're going to be great and blessed. Joseph's son is here to make things right. Because when Jesus was teaching this lesson at the synagogue at that time, God's people were in the middle of being oppressed again. This time it was by Rome. And so they hear what they want to hear, and they hear, hey, Jesus is going to come and we won't be captives any longer. Jesus is going to overthrow Rome for us. That's the message their pride caused them to hear. Centuries of developing this ethnocentric pride. And while they were doing it, they were establishing religious works. They became legalistic. If it's possible at all, they became proud of their pride to the point where they started dividing the ranks, even of their own people. Now they're going to leave even some of their own people out of the great and blessed promise. In their mind, for sure, anybody outside of Israel is now going to be in trouble because the Messiah is coming to elevate Israel to the most favored position. So if you're not part of God's chosen people, you better be ready to get dominated. But then they also created divisions amongst themselves as well. So now the promise of the Messiah was only going to truly benefit the good people in Israel. People who went to the synagogue. People who followed the rules and observed God's laws. Those were the folks who were going to become great and blessed. For sure, no foreigners, but also no Israelites who don't follow the rules. If you're picturing the mayor of Whoville right now explaining to the Grinch why he can't take part in Christmas, because he doesn't do the right things or say the right things, then you're you're getting this. God's people were so sure they were doing it right. And now Jesus is going to blatantly expose their pride. He's going to say, you only think you knew. Why I'm coming. Look at verses twenty-three to twenty-seven with me. And so Jesus said to them, No doubt you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do it here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, and the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. So Jesus is coming to this part in his sermon where he's going to explain, because of their pride, God's people are missing a huge part of the gospel. They're missing the part about the opportunity for salvation coming through God's Son being good news for the poor. How eternal salvation gives sight to the blind. They've totally missed that part. And the part they didn't miss, they've misinterpreted. Jesus didn't come so he could lead a revolt against Rome, create a physical kingdom. He came to reconcile lost, broken, prideful people back to the God who created them. And he's Jesus. He knows his message is going to offend him. And so he indicates, you're going to turn on me. You're going to turn on me because you think you understand why I came, but you don't. He says, you're going to start criticizing me and tell me to take care of my own business. That's what physician heal yourself is all about. Mind your own business. You're going to ask why I didn't show up here in Nazareth doing the same kind of things I did in Capernaum. If you read Mark chapter 1, Verse 21 to 27, it shows that Jesus drove an unclean spirit out of a man while he was there. Really cool. And then Jesus is going to address the reality that people throughout history have had a hard time accepting the words of the prophets that God has sent. Read the First Testament. You see this over and over again. Prophet after prophet is rejected by the people that God sends him to with the words that God gives him. Now this May seem like kind of an unusual segue to this next part of his sermon. Because up to this point in time, the folks are loving Jesus, right? So why did he switch? Why did he have to speak the truth in love? Why did he have to intentionally attack their pride? See, God didn't send Jesus to start a megachurch and preach easy believism, have everybody love him, did he? No. We looked at this a couple weeks ago in the Christmas message. Jesus came, and there's going to be division, and he's going to be opposed because it eternally matters if we place our faith in Jesus, not whether we like what he's preaching. We won't like it. The gospel is offensive. It cuts us open, and it displays how unable we are to save ourselves, and that offends people. Jesus knows it. He sees these people's hearts. He knows the problems they have with pride. He knows where this is going to end up. So he is so willing to speak the truth in love here because they need it, because we need it. So Jesus gives a couple of examples about just how big and wide and deep the true gospel message is, and these examples are going to infuriate the people in the synagogue. But they're going to help us really see what the the purpose in Christ's teaching is. And so first, Jesus tells a story from 1 Kings. Now, this is a story I guarantee that everybody in the synagogue would have been familiar with. Without a doubt, they'd missed the application point, just how far the gospel reaches. So Jesus reminds his audience of a time during Elijah's ministry when there was a severe famine in the entire region, and lots of people are starving to death. Widows and children are dying, and God steps in. And he chooses to save a specific widow. And she wasn't, wait for it, she wasn't one of God's chosen people. She wasn't an Israelite. She was actually a Phoenician woman. This is a huge scandal. And just in case they don't get the message about how inclusive the true gospel is, Jesus uses the word of God to illustrate it again. This time from 2 Kings. Another story that these folks knew. In this one, all of Israel is dealing with some leprosy outbreak. And God chooses to extend mercy through the prophet Elisha to, wait for it, a foreign king. Naaman was a king from Syria. What is Jesus doing here? He's pointing these people to the true breadth of the gospel message. Because they were sitting around thinking, fantastic! The Messiah is here. It's a time of unspeakable joy because we're going to be great and blessed. And Jesus calls a time out. He says, let me explain something here. The good news is not going to look like what you think it's going to look like. So how did they react to this good news? Well, they 100% demonstrated that they never understood it. Verses 28 to 30 with me. The people in the synagogue were filled with rage. As they heard these things. And they got up and they drove Jesus out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built. Why'd they do that? In order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. And I think that story is so cool because and, and, Jesus doesn't die there. But like I can't wrap my head around what that looked like. But because of my age, for some reason, I always get that picture in my head of the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote from the old cartoons. Do you remember those? And, and finally, if the roadrunner would ever get caught by the coyote, there'd be this vicious scrum and they'd like kick up this huge cloud of dust and there'd be this fight and all of a sudden the roadrunner would just step out of the fight but the, the cloud of dust would keep going. And then eventually, you, if you watch those, the cloud of dust would go off a cliff and then gravity would kick in and the coyote would plummet to, but not his death, it's a cartoon. You know, but, but I always get that picture. How did Jesus get out of this? I don't know. He's Jesus. But these people are angry. And they want to kill him. And actually, it's it's worse than anger. It's rage, right? They're so mad, they want to push Jesus off a cliff. Now, this is just dripping with irony. Because the folks at the synagogue, they were the good people, right? They were God's people. They were Jewish. They, They weren't a bunch of pagans. They'd shown up at synagogue that day. Doesn't that show how good they are? And then the carpenter's son comes in. And he tells them the gospel is for the poor, and the captives, and the blind, and the downtrodden. And they saw themselves as oppressed, but they sure didn't see themselves being that bad. And then Jesus goes as far as to explain that God's blessings go all the way out to the Gentiles. Now those must have been fighting words. Because here's the irony. These good people got so angry that they leave the synagogue with the intent to kill Jesus. They would have said they weren't poor and broken. But when push comes to shove, if we push on the messages that they choose to believe, if, if we push on things that people don't like, these people are going to go shove Jesus off a cliff. Can we see ourselves in this story? If somebody challenges our preferences, if we've become prideful, and exclusive, when someone speaks the truth and love to us, do we want to push them off a cliff? We may think we know what something is all about. We may think we know what the local church is all about, but if what we think is, well, church needs to be about this thing that I like or that thing that I like, and it can never include anything I don't like, well, then how do we react when the lobby isn't decorated the way we like and the library doesn't look like what we like, or I don't like how the youth program runs around all over the building. They should just stay in the basement and be quiet. How do we react when we realize there are people in the church who dress differently than I do? And they talk differently than I do, and they pray differently than I do. And there's sinners here. I know that guy was at the bar just last night. How do we react? Do we see what we've done? We, we, we think we know what the church is supposed to look like. But if we're elevating our pride and our preference over God's purpose for sending his son and his plan, which is the church, for how we can be together as Christ followers in the local church, then we really don't know. From this point on in Luke's gospel, everything that Jesus does is going to be in the context of helping these prideful people who thought they knew what the coming of the Messiah was all about They thought they understood the gospel message. He's going to help them see they really don't know. So let me wrap this up by pointing out four key areas where God's people in this passage, in their ethnocentric pride, got it wrong. And consequently, these are areas where we can still struggle in application today. There's four areas where the true gospel and the purpose behind Jesus coming to be God with us is actually much different from the way that God's prideful people thought it was going to be. First difference. The people in the synagogue here in Luke chapter 4, they thought the Messiah was coming for Israel and just Israel. And they were wrong. Good news of the gospel can benefit people from all ethnic backgrounds. So here's God's chosen people. They should have been showing compassion for the world humility in their relationship with God, and instead they became arrogant and prideful and all about themselves. We'll get to see Jesus dealing with this over the next several months in Luke. In Luke chapter 7, there's this great story where Jesus heals the centurion's servant. Centurion is a Roman officer, has control of a 100 men. Jesus is so blown away by the Roman officer's faith. Do you remember that passage? What does he say? Not even in Israel. Have I found such great faith? See, faith is much more important than where you're from. We're going to see the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Who's the hero of that story? Who's the one who shows compassion? I guess the title of the story gives it away, doesn't it? It's the Samaritan. Again, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus heals ten lepers. Only one of them comes back to say thanks. Was he Jewish? mm Samaritan. Over and over again here in Luke, Jesus keeps attacking the idea that the gospel message and Jesus' ministry was just for Israel because it's not. It's for every person who professes faith in Jesus Christ. And number two, another area where God's people misunderstood the breadth of the gospel. They thought that bad people got left out. They became super prideful of their religious works to the point where they were just positive that sinners and drunkards and gluttons, they're all going to be outside of the kingdom. Certainly the Messiah is not coming back for them. God and all his goodness and his holiness, he's going to destroy those folks. But look at what happened. Jesus comes back. Who does he hang out with? Who does he go and eat with? How many times do we see religious people pointing fingers at Jesus for being the friend of sinners, calling him a drunkard and a glutton? These people had become big-time rule followers. And so they were positive the Messiah was coming back for people who followed the rules. And Jesus is going to show them over and over again, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. It's the poor, it's the blind, it's the oppressed. Those are the people that Jesus is coming to minister to. And that's going to include people, it has to, with a whole lot of struggles, a whole lot of baggage. As a local church, how are we doing in that area? Do we want the gospel to extend to bad people? Or do we just want it to come to people who are kind of like us? I mean, they're kind of bad, but they've got just that one area where they struggle a little bit. See, Jesus is not only coming for people who had messed up lives, but now they've got it figured out and and they're heading in the right direction. No. We have to understand the gospel benefits all people who have been saved by grace. Gospel can benefit someone who's currently drowning in sin as long as they'll receive grace. That's the beauty of it. Jesus didn't come back for good people because apart from a relationship with him, there are no good people. God's people thought they had it all figured out. They were going to be great and blessed because they were good, but they were wrong. Third area where they missed, and we can miss too. And this is so closely related to number two. The Jewish people were positive that God was primarily concerned about their actions, and they're wrong. What's God most interested in? Our hearts. God knows that our hearts are the wellspring of our actions. But Israel's focus was always the law. The law, the law, the law. We have to keep the law. And Jesus is going to come and just blow that up. Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount on your own this week. Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Jesus says in there repeatedly, you've heard that the law says, but I say. Law says no adultery. And so people walk around feeling good about themselves because they hadn't committed the physical act of adultery, but then Jesus drops the hammer on him, And he says, but if you look at someone in lust, you've committed the same sin. Ouch. Law says, don't kill anybody. And we puff out our chest and we say, all right, never done that. And then Jesus says, but if you've been angry with somebody and it leads to rage, then you've committed that sin. Ouch. Who I know. Let's go push Jesus off a cliff. See, Jesus is interested in the motivation of these people's hearts, not their external actions. Jesus shows up and he's all about the heart. He sees our hearts, so he judges who we are, not just what we do. The synagogue crowd didn't understand that. Last one, number four. This one's a little edgy. It's a huge area where God's people misunderstood was that they thought the Messiah was coming back to be an earthly king. They thought he was going to be a political ruler, establish an earthly kingdom, and they loved that idea. Because they had suffered such consequences for their sin. So they wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome and then let them get some payback on the folks who dominated them. Because now it was their turn to be great and blessed. That's what they wanted because they didn't truly understand. Without making too much of a political statement, let me just say this. Even today, it seems like we spend a lot of time and effort and energy and money trying to legislate morals and behavior. We try to ban things and pass laws and make rules. And in my understanding, the only thing that I've ever seen that's able to transform individual lives and then grow and spread and transform cultures is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. So are we putting as much time and effort and energy and money into spreading the gospel as we are trying to pass legislation? Now, please hear me on this. I'm not saying we shouldn't participate in the process that we have. We should. I certainly believe we should be informed and support candidates and plans and programs that are aligned with godly principles. We need to do that. But in the end, we'll never be able to legislate transformed lives or changed hearts. God alone does that. Jesus came to establish an eternal kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. So that's Jesus' first sermon back in his hometown. He loved these prideful people enough to challenge them. They thought they knew what the coming of the Messiah was all about, but it turns out they didn't really know. And at the end of the passage, what do they do? They try to kill Jesus. And they don't succeed that time. But eventually, people who thought they understood how things should work, but they didn't, they do kill Jesus. And you know what happened? most incredible thing you can imagine Jesus took our prideful sin upon himself, and he took it to the cross, and he died so that we could be forgiven of that sin, but he didn't stay dead. He conquered sin and death, and he rose again, and he established this eternal kingdom that he was all about from the start. I'm going to close our time together today by taking communion. This will be our chance to examine our hearts and confess our sins and And the Word says we'd be right with God. If you're new with us, we observe this tradition every week somewhere, either here in the worship service or in our small groups, because we see this as such an important reminder of Christ's work on the cross. So we're going to have some response time. There'll be some music. If you're here as a Christ follower, you can come and participate whenever you're ready. The elements are all around the room on the tables. But in that response time, I'm going to pray that we can ask ourselves this question. Do we truly know why God sent his son to become a man? Or do we just think we know? Do we think we have to be good enough to benefit from the gospel? Do we think we have to be from a certain ethnic group? Is our pride, is our preference blocking us from seeing a true view of the gospel? Or do we understand that all we need to benefit from Jesus coming to this earth is to recognize our sinfulness, to recognize our need for a Savior and receive God's grace by professing faith in Jesus Christ. If up to this point in time we've misunderstood the purpose of Jesus coming, if we've never received grace, responded with faith, it's not too late. Today can be the day. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 21, that's what Jesus says. Luke quotes Jesus. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is talking about the full availability of the gospel. Both the gospel message and the gospel messenger. And he says today, because it's urgent. Do we truly know Jesus? Or do we just think we know? Let me pray for the bread and the cup. Daddy, thank you. Thank you for this story from your word. God, that challenges us. Do we just think we know about you? Because your word says you have written these things so that we can know. God, to have changed lives, to be transformed, we have to know you. God, for those of us here who are Christ followers, as we remember your sacrifice on the cross, as we think about your great love for us, God, will we we use that to be motivated to go out and spread your gospel? Because people who don't know you will be eternally separated from you. God, can can that be the challenge for us today? God, if there are people here who don't know you, God, I pray you'd be calling them to yourself and they'd understand they just need to recognize their need for you and receive the grace that you desire to pour out on us and respond by professing faith in your son. God, thank you for sending your son as the way to reconcile us to you. God, we love you. We thank you and praise you for this chance to be together in worship today. We ask all those things in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.